had one of the most interesting phone calls of my ministry this week. It's not often I get calls like this, but I got one. MTV has the number one and the number two rated shows for 18 to 25, excuse me, from 13 to 25 year olds, and they are The Real World and Road Rules, respectively. I'm sure some of you know these uh, shows, and some of you know them a little better than others. These shows basically put a half a dozen college-age students, co-eds, together for six or eight months. And one of them, they put them together in a house to live together, and the other puts them in a van or a bus or something to travel around the country and even around the world for a similar period of time. And there's a camera on them all the time, right? How many of you guys know of these shows? And we'll admit it. Great, good for you. The rest of you need to get the tape online. Well, this week I had a phone call. It was quite interesting. April gave me a little sheet that said, call this, this girl back from MTV. So I called her back. And it turns out that she's the head of casting for these two shows. And they're about to fill the next slot for Road Rules and for, what's it called? The Real World, uh, coming up in January. And they want, six in each, obviously, they want for each of those shows a strong evangelical Christian to represent a Christian worldview. And she said, I've heard of your church. We obviously know the stance that it has and long standing in Los Angeles. And I was hoping to find out from you if you could give us a couple of students. And she says this, in fact, I can basically guarantee you, if you handpick them, we'll put them on these shows. Quit coveting. <laughs> well, after she began explaining to it, I had just read an article I believe in World Magazine about these, uh, these two shows. It was very interesting. So I asked her a few questions. I said, uh, her name was Kim. I said, Kim, do these, do these young people ever end up in an immoral relationship sleeping with each other? And she says, well, um, uh, yeah, sometimes. And I said, do they generally have positive or negative lasting impressions from this six-month experience? And she was dead silent. I said, did the majority of these students end up needing counseling at the end of the show? And you know what she said? Well, actually, yes, they do. And they have psychiatrists and psychologists along the whole way behind the cameras to give them perspective and help as they're struggling through this forced environment. I find it very interesting that this is called the real world when they actually make it up. Well, I listened for probably 10 or 15 minutes to her and... We were getting uh, pretty amiable on the phone and having a great time. And I said, you know what, Kim? She said, look, I, I, I've asked a few other Christian institutions. That one of them was going to give me 600 names. If you'll give me two, we'll get them on. And so I said, you know what, Kim? I'm a shepherd, and these are my sheep. And you're asking me to put my sheep in harm's way. You're asking me to put them in a situation that will be constantly allowing them to be tempted. And then she said, by the way, did I tell you Pastor Holland, that I'm an evangelical Christian. I said, actually, no, that, that didn't come up until now. And she says, I think you should do this. What a great opportunity to tell the world, because they watch this all around the world, tell the world the gospel. And my answer was, you know what? God's doing okay with the gospel without road rules. And um, I think he's going to continue to do that. And so I said no and hung up the phone. Now, I know many of you are saying, shoot. <laughs> I would have gone. That would have been a great example. 
Well, this whole interplay, interchange, really highlighted again to me the importance of values and how different the values of Jesus Christ and His church are from that of the rest of the world. We're diametrically opposed to that of the world. And in the coming weeks, we're going to unpack that as we enter a study together that I promise you will be challenging and convicting, and no doubt it will be controversial. What we're going to learn together will stretch you, and I trust force you to define and articulate your values and convictions about the second most important issue in your life. Obviously, the first most important issue is a relationship with Jesus Christ, coming into a saving relationship through the gospel of Christ. But the second most important issue of life is also about a relationship. And it's your relationship with that person whom you will marry. Now, if you're wondering, well, Rick, I thought this was going to be a series on relationships and romance. Let me say from the very beginning, everyone look up. This is my premise. I'm going to tell you where I'm going to go probably ten weeks from now. This is the conclusion. Are you ready? In the Bible, there is no romantic relationship that's not just short of marriage or in marriage. The only reason to have an exclusive dating, courting, whatevering relationship with the opposite sex is for the purpose of pursuing marriage. Now, that doesn't mean there's a process to get to there, and we're going to talk a lot about that. How are we to approach relationships and romance? How can we do that in a way that honors God and honors His Word? Well, here we go. Are you ready? Let's snap our seatbelts on and kind of dig in and see where the Word of God takes us. First of all, a few disclaimers. In the next few weeks, we're going to raise a lot of questions. And can I ask you to please not bombard me and crucify me and ridicule me and write me the nasty notes anonymously that you always do until we finish? All right? A lot of the questions and issues that you're going to raise, I'm sure we'll address in a few weeks. So just wait. Just wait. Also, I want to tell you, everyone look up. All right? Let me stand away from the Scriptures when I say this. I am not an expert in relationships. In fact, I'm a great failure in relationships. If my wife were here today, she would tell you that. She could rehearse the way our relationship went, and I'm quite an expert in failing at relationships. I'm an expert in doing them wrong. So I think I have something to say about that experientially. But I also know what the Word of God says, and I'm going to try to bring balance to both of those. I don't stand up here as someone who's got it all figured out, who's done it right, who can stand on a pedestal of righteousness and say, come follow me as I have emulated Christ in all of these areas. And lastly, in terms of disclaimer, I want us to be honest with each other. Very honest with yourself. Very honest with the Lord about the models of getting together, about the methods, and especially with the Word of God. It's critically important that all of us look to the Word of God, to the right place to define uh, our wisdom and insight and instruction from this important area. And perhaps, as I've found in my experience, the worst place to look for wisdom and insight and instruction on relationships is the radio. Here's what I've learned from the radio. Ready? If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Don't break my heart, my achy, breaky heart. I just think you'd understand. And if you break my heart, my achy, breaky heart, it might blow up and kill this man. You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. God must have spent a little bit more time on you. I'm 
too sexy for your love and my shirt. <laughs> then you get the direct approach. I want your sex. Okay. I always hoped he wasn't singing that to me. I want you. I need you. There ain't no way I'm ever going to love you. But don't be sad, because two out of three ain't bad. You can have my girl, but don't take my hat. A little country flavor for you. Oh, it's sad to belong to someone else when the right one comes along. If you can't be with the one, honey, love the one you're with. Close your eyes. Give me your hand, darling. Can you feel my heart beating? Do you understand? Do you feel the same? Or am I only dreaming? Is this burning? And eternal flame. I'm going to love you forever. Forever and ever. Amen. Biblical song. If you love me, let me know. If you don't, then let me go. Looking for love in all the wrong places. And I will always love you. I said I loved you, but I lied. Because this is more than love I feel inside. For better or worse, till death do us part, I'll love you with every beat of my heart, I swear. I swear. Oh, whoa, what's love got to do with it? You done tore my heart out and stomped that sucker flat. And lastly, from the countryside of the stations, you're the reason our kids are so ugly. If you've got some more good ones, I'm compiling a list. I'd love to have any that you could find. There were others that I found that I really just couldn't use, but I'm sure that some of those are floating around your mind right now. Anyway, the goal of every Christian is hopefully not to be guided by such insight and wisdom from the radio waves, but to have his or her life guided by the Bible. However, there's some dawning problems that a Christian faces when you or I try to discover what the Bible has to say about dating and courtship. Why? Well, one of the problems is that the hordes of opinions on how to handle dating are plethora. There are so many. They're coming out with books faster than I can read them. And normally, it doesn't concern us. All we do is silence the babble of opinions by opening the Word of God and letting it speak. However, the Bible seems to have lost its voice when it comes to this or it would be clearer from those clarions who are rising up and telling us how to do this. They would agree with each other on some level. But instead, it's become a raging debate. Dating is not in the Bible. And, as I'll explain in a minute, neither is courtship. As many of these writers would have us think. But the Bible does regard marriage as normal. And relationships with the opposite sex is a part of God's blessing to His creation. The Word of God calls it the grace of life. Co-heirs of the grace of life. I am married. 
I love being married. I'm so glad I don't have to date or court or whatever you call it again. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my relationship with my wife. Kim and I were driving down the 210 freeway the other day. Having When you're married a few years, you have these talks. You know, I was, Every now and then I'll say, Honey, you know, if anything ever happened to me, let me share what the insurance policies are. I want you to talk to this guy about investing. I want you to do this. Make sure that and, you know, I'm doing this stuff. And she hates those talks, but I need to have them with her every, every now and then. And then, uh, and then she says, out of the blue, she says, You know what? If I died, it would be easier for you to find another wife than me. And I said, Well, that's good. I hope you don't ever find another wife. <laughs> And we began talking about that, and both of us came to the conclusion, let's just live a long time and just not even go there again. So I am so glad I am on this side, and so glad it's you on that side. Marriage is normal, and it's extolled. God made it for a man and a woman. He created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. There's always one, isn't there? Not only was marriage blessed in a normal mode in Scripture, but it's almost expected. Did you know that there's no Hebrew word for bachelor? No Hebrew word in the Old Testament for bachelor. It's just assumed that you would have a wife, that you'd have a husband. So God honors marriage so much that He chose that relationship between a husband and wife to represent His relationship with his people. In Jeremiah 3, he did that. In Ezekiel 16, he did that. In Hosea 1 to 3, as we saw this morning, he did that. And between himself and the church, his bride, in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. God used the, the illustration of a man and a woman in the bond of marriage to illustrate his ultimate sacrifice, love, and relationship with his people. Being and remaining single is addressed in Scripture, to be sure, but it's addressed as something that's an exception, not normative. If you go to the Old Testament, you can see Jeremiah's call to remain unmarried in Jeremiah 16. And it's a unique prophetic sign. And Paul discusses the spiritual advantages of being single in 1 Corinthians 7. But Paul also wrote Ephesians 5 by the gift of the Holy Spirit's inspiration, which extols marriage. It should be noted that marriage and family life are always seen as normal in the Bible. John 2, verses 1 to 11, Jesus attends a wedding. Seems to honor it in that way. In Ephesians 5, 22-23, God uses marriage, as we've seen, as an illustration of Christ's relationship with His church. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, a pastor and, elder and elders are supposed to have solid marriages. That's one of their qualifications. In 1 Timothy 4, 3, only a false teacher would teach that you should abstain from marriage. And in 1 Timothy 5, 14, young widows are encouraged to get married again to keep Satan at bay. God honors marriage. God encourages marriage. So if marriage is the optimum relationship then, how in the world can we get from where you're sitting to the altar? Hopefully not today. How can we make sense out of the insanity of dating today? I'm sure all of you are aware that there's a movie out, self-titled. It's a self-titled, rather, admission of viewing relationships without a clue. Why would you ever call a movie about romance Eyes Wide Shut? Now, I only know a little bit about this from what I've seen on um, uh, the Internet that reviews movies. This is a, uh, a horrifically uh, blasphemous movie in terms of God's view of marriage and God's view of sex. And it admits that it's got its eyes wide shut. Well, what I want to do, and hence our title, is teach you in the coming weeks to keep your eyes wide open. 
to look at relationships honestly, to look at them biblically, to look at them corporately, to look at them from a proper perspective so that you're not duped, so that you don't get into a relationship that you ought not, and so that you might get into a relationship that you should. I've told you before, I hope this series breaks some of you up and brings others of you together. Well, for our study this time, I just want to introduce the subject and the topic. I want us to simply open our minds up and open our eyes up, keeping our eyes wide open to this issue of relational regulations. And if you want to fully engage in understanding relationships from God's perspective, you're going to need to pay close attention today to three relational regulations. Regulation is something that regulates. It's something that meters and monitors the process. Well, I want us to look today at three relational regulations to understanding this subject in a way that will honor God. The first is this, and this is where we're going to spend the most of our time. The last two won't take that long, so don't think that I'm running out of time, okay? This is where we're going to spend the most of our time today. The first thing that you need to understand as a relational regulation is this. You have to evaluate the relational models. You have to evaluate the relational models, and there are several out there, and we're going to look at them. Is there one right way to get together with the opposite sex? Some would have you believe that. And to answer that question, let's examine some models, some examples that are known to us. And by models, gentlemen, I do mean examples. We're not looking at those kind of models. We're looking at examples. First of all, let's look at cultural examples. What are some from the culture? Looking around the world. Rob Anthony uh, helped me send out some emails uh, a couple weeks ago to our missionaries around the world to say, how do people come into relationship with each other? How do they get married in your culture? And these are foreign cultures around the world, and I kind of cataloged some of them. I want to share with you just to show you how different it is. In the calm people of calm people rather of Cameroon, the parents arrange a marriage for their daughter, usually after being approached by the family representative of an interested man. Though this uh, still takes place nowadays, it's common for the daughter to have more input than she used to. She'll let the parents know if she's interested in a certain man. However, she is then usually more respectful of her parents' decision than even her own. She'll defer to them. If a man wants to marry a certain woman in Cameroon, he'll send his family representative to the woman's parents to ask for their approval. If accepted, the bride will uh, then be named with her price. And a negotiation will begin. His representative may be a father, a firstborn son, or maybe an oldest brother, or maybe even a maternal uncle. The bride must be paid to the father, the price rather. The bride price has to be paid. Boy, that's trouble. The bride price must be paid to the father of the bride. He sets the price, and it's usually between $1 and $200. Pay that, negotiate, and you got a wife. That's in Cameroon. In Albania, where Rob Provost is a missionary, dating is really a new thing. It's, it's uh, just come about in the last few years. It's a Western import, import, but generally speaking, the rules are still quite traditional. Families are nearly always involved. If it's not arranged, as it is in many villages in Albania, the parents still have the final say. Once a couple is engaged, they're committed. And breaking an engagement is just like a divorce. It brings much shame to the girl and her father, And after an engagement is broken, it's almost impossible for that girl to ever find another mate because she's considered used. In the Mia of Papua New Guinea, I like this. The girl initiates the process by eyeing a young man that she likes and then telling her parents. Her father and older brothers and 
uh, uh, talk it over. If they like that, if he's a desirable match, then uh, they send to begin talking to the other families. These things are critical since marriage means they'll see each other a lot, possibly live each other with each other and work together the rest of their lives. It joins clans, it joins families, so it's taken very seriously. But it's initiated by the girl. It involves... She initiates it, by the way. And um, the same day, all the relatives of both sides gather together and the guy's side gives the girl's side $200 in cash. $200 seems to be the going rate for a wife these days, I guess, around the world. Then the guys go off on a... a guy, the, the married couple, after they negotiate, there's no ceremony. They just go off and, for a honeymoon and then they come back. In India, Chris Williams tells us that the tradition was that the parents always arranged the marriages and the children submitted to the parents' choice. But that's kind of changing as uh, Westernism is seeping in. But it's uh, still that way in much of the country. Your parents just chooses somebody. Actually, they sit down with other parents and... Uh, negotiate this deal, and you show up when you're 15, 16, 18 years old, and you say, uh, welcome to the family, and you're married. In Kiev, it's about the same as we do it here, except that 99% of all couples who get married live with their parents without a honeymoon, sometimes from 5 to 15 years. In the Czech Republic, very interesting, the young, the traditionally, a young Czech man would look for a sturdy, hard-working young woman who would be able to weather the rigors of raising children, keeping home, and helping on the farm. So much for Martha Stewart, I guess. <laughs> Parental input was generally important in the decision. Today, the process is kind of changing, and it can be, process can be very short, only a few weeks. You can pick someone out, go get a marriage license, and then you're married. That's some examples from around the world. Sometimes parents are involved, sometimes they're not. Sometimes the parents are arranged, sometimes they're not. All I'm saying is that there are multiple models around the world, if you look into culture, to look. Now let me ask you this, which is right? Or maybe I should say, which is wrong? Is there a way to figure that out? Let's look next, though, at Western examples in our culture. In good old U.S. of A., Basically, it boils down, boils down to two things. Dating and courtship. Dating and courtship. Dating is defined by, as, as much as you can define it, spending time with someone of the opposite sex. If you have a better uh, definition, I'd like to have it. They're so all over the map that that's the closest one I could come to. Dating is spending time with someone of the opposite sex, usually alone or at least arranged courtship, on the other hand. And I want to give you a quote from uh, courtship guru Jonathan Lindvall when he says this. Courtship is parentally authorized romantic relationships focusing on serious contemplation and hope of future marriage. Hopefully, but not necessarily, the sole romantic relationship of their lives before marriage. Those are the two main models that you guys face. Can I ask for a, uh, excuse me, a show of hands? How many of you have heard or been involved in any kind of debate over whether courtship or dating is best or right? Can I see a show of hands? Wow, that's amazing. Well over half of you. It's going to get worse. Let me say that from the beginning that there are very much some strengths and very much some weaknesses to both of these models. And at the end of the series, we're going to take a closer look and say, how can we land 
in either or neither of these camps to figure out a process for coming to know each other in a way that honors Christ and can get us married. But I firmly believe, firmly in my heart of hearts, and can I tell you, I've been studying this a lot. I've read hundreds and hundreds of pages on dating and courtship. I've read two or three books on this just to get ready for this. Try to see everything from every angle. And I'm more convinced than ever that the only reason to enter any kind of romantic relationship, whether you call it dating or whether you call it courting, no matter what you call it, if romance is involved, then it ought to be to test the water for marriage. Every other reason you can come up with to spend time with someone of the opposite sex except romantic attraction to get married can be answered by a spiritual friendship with someone of the same sex. You say, well, I'm lonely. Okay, find a friend. Doesn't, if you're a guy, it doesn't have to be a, a girl. You can find a guy. There's, there's no reason that you have to have a girl. Well, I, I want something to do on Friday night. Well, call me. <laughs> you don't have to get together with someone of the opposite sex. It ought to be about getting married. Now, footnote, and we're going to come back to this in a few weeks. You ought to spend time, in my opinion, with somebody of the opposite sex if you are interested and it's communicated and it's reciprocated that would lead to that. But there ought to be some clear intentions before you pair off and a process to get to know someone before you begin that as well. Again, that's for the end. Don't ask the questions now. But may I dare say that there are serious biblical problems with the courtship model that's floating around? Serious biblical problems. And as we'll see in a moment, the biblical model, as some of you might believe, is not the courtship model. That the courtship model is not the model, as some would have you believe. Both of these models have been raging against each other in the church and even here in our ministry, and I've been a part of some of those debates. A recent book brought these uh, two models face-to-face in an unfortunate and, I believe, an unfair way. I kissed dating goodbye. How many of you read that book? I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, that's great. Um, let me tell you, uh, it's by Josh Harris, who's 22, 23 years old when he wrote it, got married just after it published. Um, and he, there are some wonderful principles in that book. I want to be very honest. I've read the book. It's, there's some great principles in the book. But can I be very honest with you about it as well? What he does in that book is very unfair. It's called a straw man. What he does is he takes his personal worst-case scenario of dating, the worst you could possibly make it, and he makes that into that little example of dating all of dating. It's unfair. It's called a straw man. It doesn't work. Furthermore, he rips on dating the whole book and gives you no alternative at the end. Thank you very much, Josh. You kissed dating goodbye. Who am I supposed to kiss hello? He doesn't tell you anything about that. It's a fine book. Read it with a discerning, understanding heart. You know why I read it? You know why I got interested in this? Everybody was telling me, you've got to read this book. You've got to recommend this book. You've got to get on the pulpit and tell everybody to read this book with its greatest things and sliced bread and peanut butter about relationships. I read the book and I thought, huh? There's some good things. But he makes all of dating his worst case of dating. I dated. I didn't experience those problems. I did and got married and have a great marriage. We'll come back to that in a moment. Lastly, let's look at some biblical examples. Some biblical examples. And primarily, I'm going to admit to you right now, I'm picking on the courtship model. I'm picking on it. Because as I've read 
dozens and dozens of articles about this. They keep pointing to the fact that courtship is the biblical model. Well, let's look at the biblical model and then see if it is modern courtship. Fair? First of all, there's this thing called betrothal in the ancient Near East. Now, just hold on. Let me just bore you a minute with some facts, okay? Betrothal. In English, that comes from two words, be, to cause to come to pass, and troth, to be married. It's to be married. It's our modern engagement. It's the closest thing you can come to that, but it's not the same. Please underline that in your minds or in your notes. Courtship, rather, betrothal and modern engagement. Ancient betrothal and modern engagement are not the same. They can't be the same. And I think you'll understand why in a minute. The Hebrew word is kiddushim. It's almost as binding as marriage. In fact, the betrothed woman was sometimes called a wife and under the same obligation of faithfulness in Deuteronomy 22, verses 22, 23 to 24, and in Matthew 1, 19. Usually the parents did the choosing like Hagar did for Ishmael in Genesis 21, 21, and like Judah did for Ur in Genesis 38, 6. But sometimes the man did the choosing, and his parents did the negotiation, as in the case of Shechem in Genesis 34, 4 to 8. I looked up all the instances of betrothal because I think some of the courtship people don't look at all of them. They just look at a few and take their case out of that. Sometimes the girl was asked whether she was interested, as in the case of Rebecca in Genesis 25, 48. Other times, she wasn't. She was just subject to her parents. And occasionally, the girl's parents chose a likely man to be her husband, as did Naomi, the surrogate mother of Ruth in Ruth 3, 1 to 2, and Saul in 1 Samuel 18, 21. What I find interesting and what distinguishes modern engagement from ancient betrothal is the gifts. Are the gifts involved in betrothal? There are a series of gifts. First is the mohar, which is translated marriage present in the Revised Standard Version and dowry in the American, in the Authorized Version, rather. It's used in Genesis 34, 20, 12 and for Dinah and Exodus 22:17 for a seduced maiden in 1 Samuel 18:25 for, for Michael or Michelle. Presented to the bride's father, it could be money or it could be something you do, a deed. It was usually compensation to the father for the loss of his working daughter as well as a means of providing her with the necessities she would need to get married. The mohar is implied but not so named in such passages as Genesis 24:53 for Rebekah and in 29:18 the seven years of service performed by Jacob for Rachel. Moses' uh, keeping of the sheep for his father-in-law may be interpreted the same way in Exodus 3.1. It was a compensation gift from the bridegroom to the family of the bride and it sealed the covenant and bound the two families together. They would usually seal this covenant by taking a goat or a sheep and cutting it in half and walking between those two halves. Afterwards, that covenant meant if we break this covenant, may what happened to that animal happen has that happened in anyone's courtship, by the way? A second gift is the dowry. This is a gift to the bride or the groom of the or to the groom from her father, sometimes consisting of servants, as in Genesis twenty four fifty nine, to Rebekah in uh, twenty nine twenty four, to Leah as well, and or it could be land. Discusses this in reference to the Pharaoh's daughter and the wife of Solomon or other property in first Kings nine sixteen. So there was a gift to the couple. That was a negotiated contractual gift. And the third, which I think is very interesting, is the bridegroom's gift to the bride was sometimes jewelry, 
clothing. And as, he, as the, you can see this in the case of Rebecca in Genesis 24:53, And biblical examples of oral contracts are like Jacob's offer of seven years of service to Laban in Genesis 34:12. But please note, betrothal is not the only biblical model. And what disturbs me so much, and I'm going to be very brutally honest in this series, and this is one of the places I'm going to be, I get a little exasperated with the courtship people who tell us that you need to do your relationships like the Bible did it, and the Bible had betrothal, and betrothal was courtship. Well, not only is that not true in equation, when's the last time you split a goat and walked between it to get your wife? Secondly, that's not the only model. Why choose that model over others? By the way, in that model, let's look at some of those courtship betrothal ones. Abraham and Sarah, did that produce a great marriage? They were liars. They turned out to be liars. Such with his son as well. Listen to some of these examples. Esther and King Ahasuerus. One of the neatest love stories in the Bible. King Ahasuerus was looking for a replacement for Queen Vashti and because she refused to submit to him. So he sought out beautiful young virgins and they spent a year, get this girls, a year of beautification with oils and cosmetics before each of them was paraded before the king for his choosing. He was pleased with Esther she kept her Jewish descent a secret. He made her queen. Why not use that one, okay? All right, let's use that model. Girls, go away for a year, work on all the stuff, and then we'll sit up here as gentlemen and let you parade by and pick one of you. Why don't we do that? That's a biblical model. Then there's Ruth and Boaz. I can't help but give you a little more insight in this because my wife and I were studying this together this week. It's so fascinating. Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was a foreigner and a widow. And she went to work for Boaz. He treated her with favor because of her good reputation. By the way, Ruth was the one who proposed, which I find very interesting. Can I read you a little part of this? In Ruth uh, 3, you can just listen. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. This is Naomi speaking to Ruth. And it shall be when he lies down, goes to sleep, You shall notice the place where he lies. And you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down by them. And then he will tell you what you shall do. There's a model. And she said to her, All that you say, I'll do. Verse 6, So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drank, he... And his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she secretly came in and uncovered his feet. Laid down. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. And it happened in the middle of the night. That the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. (laughs) And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you're a close relative. There's a model. Girls, pick him out. Find out where he lives. Get the key to his apartment. Go uncover his feet. And lay down and see what happens. How stupid is that? Not the Word of God, just us doing that, okay? There's Isaac and Rebekah. I like that one too. In, in Genesis 24, Abraham sent his servant Isaac to find a wife 
for Isaac. Sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac, rather. He decided to choose whoever offered him his camels a drink. We don't generally have camels today, at least not in Santa Clarita. So maybe if, uh, if you don't, maybe you should just go to the gas station and say, whichever girl puts gas in my car, that's the one. <laughs> Rebecca passed the test. She gave the camels a drink and she became the servant's choice for Isaac. Rebecca was covered with a veil when Isaac met her and he married her before he ever saw what she looked like. There's a model, isn't it? And then one of my favorites, Jacob and Rachel and Leah. Jacob loved his beautiful cousin. There's another model for you. Rachel. Love at first sight. He offered to work for her father Laban for seven years in order to marry her. Laban agreed, but then he and his older daughter Leah deceived Jacob, which I think is very interesting because Jacob had deceived for his birthright, right? Be sure your sin will find you out who didn't realize he'd married the wrong woman until after the marriage had been consummated. Now, uh, I don't understand that, okay? He's worked for this woman for seven years. She's wearing a veil. He marries her. He goes in his tent for his honeymoon and does what married people do. And the next morning decides it's not her. Anyway, they must have looked an awful lot alike, don't you think? So he marries her, and then Laban says, guess what? Wrong girl. So then he waited, don't be fooled, he waited how long to marry Rachel? Seven years? Seven days. It was a week. But he had to continue working for her for the next seven years. But my favorite of all the models, if you want to say, let's look to the Bible for a model, we'll do it like they did it. Adam went to sleep and woke up and there was his bride. So I suggest going and getting some of that constant comet tea, which is supposed to put you to sleep, eating those big turkey uh, uh, feasts at Thanksgiving, and just laying down saying, Lord, bring me my rib. (laughs) Couldn't we do that? Students, I'm being facetious. Look up a second. Please note this. It's very important because I think that the people who support courtship are very unfair with this. Not necessarily uh, uh, mean-spirited, but very unfair. The Bible does not show a model or even a best model. You want to use Solomon as a model? 700 wives and 300 concubines? The Bible doesn't give us a model. Well, because of that, let's look at the second relational regulation. A second relational regulation, and it's this. You have to expose the relational myths. If you want to do this thing right, let's look at it honestly and expose myths that are around and surrounding relationships. First one is this. There's two of them. At least two of them. There's only one way to pursue relationships. You ever heard that? There's only one way to pursue relationships, so you better find it. Well, there's something wrong with that, as we'll see in a minute. Another myth is, uh, um, is this. Marital success is dependent upon the dating or courtship process or model. Did you hear that? How successful you are in marriage will be dependent on how you got together. That's not always true. That's not even usually true. 
It's a straw man, again, that people set up to make us believe what they would have us believe. Listen, the method you use to get married will not and cannot guarantee the success of your marriage. If it were that simple, you know what the Word of God would have done? In First Thessalonians 5, it would have said, Here is the process for how you do relationships. First, ask. Second, do. It didn't do that anywhere. It's not the process you use, students. It's the person you are. It's not the process you use. It's the person who you are. You can give dating a great big kiss goodbye if you want to, but that doesn't mean that Mr. or Mrs. Wright is waiting for you after the last chapter of that book. It's not about processes. It's about personhood. It's about being spiritually mature and biblically wise enough to make good, solid decisions in reference to yourself and in reference to the person you're looking for or looking to. We are so desperate for processes. We want programs. We want some way that we can match ourselves and look through and make sure we do it. The Bible doesn't give us that. The Bible says you be who God wants you to be. And when you are that, you'll look for the right kind of person. But if you're not who you ought to be before the Lord in spiritual wisdom and spiritual maturity, you'll never look for the right person. Don't be duped and fooled. Instead, I want you to join me as in the next few weeks we begin uncovering what we should be, what we should look for. There's a third relational regulation. And that's that you should exercise the relational mandates. Exercise the relational mandates. A mandate is something you do. Exercise the relational to-do list. What mandates? What to-do list, you might say? It might surprise you to find out that the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere how to find a marriage partner. It gives us lots of accounts of people doing that. It just doesn't tell us how to do it, does it? It leaves that to our wisdom and our maturity. So then, what are the mandates or the things we ought to do regarding pursuing our relationships? Let me give you two big ones. First is this. Don't pursue finding the, the, the right kind of process, but pursue being the right kind of person. Don't pursue finding the right kind of process, but pursue being the right kind of person. That's what God wants you to be. That's what He wants you to do. Listen, it's not about process. It's about maturity in Christ, right? Also, and this is where I want us to really jump off the diving board and launch into this for the next few weeks. You need to approach all, not some, not a few, not just the romantic ones, but all relationships with biblical integrity. And if you do that, it'll work itself out. In the coming weeks, we're going to unpack this last relational regulation on what are the mandates? What do we ought to do? Next week, we're going to start. Now, gentlemen, this will not be a good week or two for you to miss. We're going to look at who the man ought to be, what a man ought to pursue, what he ought to be in his being, what he ought to look like in his spiritual maturity. So, gentlemen, we're going to look at who we ought to be. But, girls, you've got to come too. Because the man who we're describing for us to be is the kind of man you ought to look for and the kind of man you ought not compromise against. Then, after a few weeks of that, we're going to flip it around. We're going to look at the women, who they need to be, who you need to be. And, gentlemen, then you can come and make a list. But be careful as we're pursuing this. We'll say this a lot of times. Don't make this list of who you want. Sometimes Jesus doesn't match that list, okay? 
Some of you are looking for Jesus, not a mate. Be realistic and be open and be honest and be biblical. Do you understand the models? Students, don't be duped. Don't be yanked around by people who are going to tell you this is the way you ought to do it because the Bible tells you so. I read an article this week that was titled this. Actually, one of the sections in it was titled this. um, The Biblical Mandate Against Dating. And I went, wow. I didn't know the Bible said anything about dating. So I began reading it, and then it began eisegeting, which means adding what you think, eisegeting 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8, on defraud, and said, see, this is all about dating. Don't be duped. Keep your eyes wide open. Think this through. And my goal is this, students. By the end of this series, it may be 6 or 8 or 10 or 12 weeks by the time we finish it. By the end of this thing, I want you to know who you need to be, who you're truly looking for, what a relationship with a person of the opposite sex is really about, how to honor God in all of those, and more than anything else, how to get there, what you ought to do. If you have questions, I want you to feel free to talk to me. Talk to the shepherds. I don't want to put you off or put you out. We're going to unpack a lot of this in the coming weeks. But be honest with the Word of God. This, beloved, is our only authority. Amen? And this has a lot of models, and it doesn't tell us to employ any of them, does it? If it doesn't, and it tells us to be the right kind of person, then let's focus all of our energies on becoming who God wants us to be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you're good.